Let's look at Matthew chapter 13 tonight. Matthew chapter 13. We're looking at our parables as we continue studying the parables. Remember, parables are identified by those two little words. I repeat things often during a series so that you uh, uh, learn habitually some of these answers. Parables are identified by two words. What are the two words? Like and as. Now, is there anyone? Mike's got the handouts. Anyone that doesn't have a handout? Brother Henry, did you get one? Uh, give the Bennett's one and, and over here and, and uh, fill out the blanks when you get home, the practical application part. We're going through the parables in chronological order. Tonight we have a unique parable. Matthew's the only gospel that uh, shares this parable with us. And we know that parables are uh, fictional stories to illustrate truth. Isn't that something? The Lord Jesus does so many things in Scripture that fascinate me. Allegories, thank you for the book, uh, and uh, parables, types, uh, you know, uh, just so many different things. Tonight we'll see a little typology in here, but uh, we're looking at chapter 13. Now, Matthew, of course, was the writer. His Hebrew name was Levi. We know he was a publican. He held a banquet to try to reach his friends. What a great testimony that was try to reach his friends with the gospel. I had a big banquet. He's what we call the one who wrote about the, the gospel of the kingdom. You know, Matthew talks a lot about the coming kingdom. And the Bible says, had they accepted John the Baptist, that would have been their Elijah, and God would have brought the kingdom in. And we say how sad they didn't accept Messiah, but folks, where would the Gentiles be? I mean, thank God, and he will. He grafted the Gentiles in, and guess what? He'll save 144,000 Jews one day when Moses and I believe Elijah, uh, are raised back from the dead. I don't believe it's Enoch because he wasn't a Jew. Uh, and, and, but anyway, um, we know that that's going to be a great, great revival of Jews. And then they'll go out and preach in the masses of Gentiles that will be saved. So we have a lot to look forward to. But Matthew is one of the early disciples. Now, only 42% of Matthew is unique, but this parable is part of the unique section of Matthew. We know the rest is synoptic, meaning he uh, intertwines them. God inspired three different men, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they all, they all share so many stories in common. But tonight we have a unique passage. Now we know Matthew, we call that the complete gospel. If you want the most complete record of the four gospels, Matthew's going to give you that. Mark, remember, we call the chronological gospel. It's in perfect order. It doesn't include everything, but from beginning to end, it's the order of the life of Christ and the things that happen. Luke, we, we know, is the most historically, most historical. He gives us so much historical information. And then John, of course, the unique gospel. 92% of John is unique. Tonight, we're in Matthew. And the first parable of Matthew chapter 13, uh, the sower in the soil. Tonight, we're looking at here uh, the ninth parable. The ninth parable, picking up in 1324, and we know that uh, this is a parable of the wheat and the tares. So let's stand and just, we're not going to read all the verses because there's, uh, you know, 18 verses, but we're going to read a couple of verses. Stretch your legs. Another parable put he forth unto them, verse 24, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened, there's your word, unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. 
to the enemy. We know who that is. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. This is Darnell. Uh, that's what tares are, the technical word. Uh, Darnell, uh, the tares are. So the servants of the householder came to him and said, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in the field? From whence then hath it tares? He said to them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while you gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. You've all experienced that in your gardening, haven't you? When you go out to pull up weeds, sometimes you pull a good flower out and you get frustrated. And so there's a logical time to wait, and there's reasons they waited, and we'll talk about that later. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather you together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, and gather the wheat into my barn. Now that burning is... A type of what? You know, here is the, the false seed. The seed is the word of God and the fruit, our souls. And so this burning would be a type of, you know, eternal punishment, wouldn't it? A type of that doesn't say that, but you know, it's a type. So here you have the separation of the wheat and tares at the end of time. Now, the, the answer to this parable will pick up in verse 34 after we pray. God bless us as we take a look in the book for a walk in the world. God, hide me behind the cross tonight that everyone will see Jesus, hear his word, and Lord, help all of us to examine our hearts, to think about what we need to change, what we need to do, to not only learn about this parable, but make an application to our lives. Bless now, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So here we find, you know, the first parable of Matthew described the work of Christ this parable describes the work of Satan. The enemy's always at work. And uh, we find that this, this is a second of only two parables in the Bible where Jesus answers and explains the parable. And of all the parables we're going to look at, only two are explained, and this is the second one. We've already looked at the first one. And the reason for this story is for our comfort. One great scholar said, it's to comfort us. To know that even though there are always tares amongst the wheat, we know God will deal with them. Because tares look exactly like wheat until the harvest time. And what are tares representing? They're representing hypocrites that are in the church. People who play act, aren't really saved, and are in the church. And I'm not saying tonight that some of you are lost, but there's no doubt that in every church there are people who come across as being saved, but oftentimes they're not. And so you know your own heart, but you don't know the hearts of everyone else. There are people who are raised in church. Well, I, I have them tell me when I witness, well, my grandmother, I've been in church all my life. Well, when did you become a Christian? I've been a Christian all my life. And I'm like, wait a minute. You have to have a time in your life when you're born again. You know, I don't say it like that, but I have to present the gospel to them. And we know that, that there are people in church and while maybe we can't say, uh, you know, if there's anyone here tonight, the, no doubt in 21 years, the probability is that we've had wheat amongst the tares. We've had lost people here, and God knows who they are. So here, uh, this scholar says it's for our comfort, knowing God will deal with them. So the reason he told the story, now the lesson he's teaching. Well, there's several contrasts in this passage. We see wheat and tares. We see the enemy and the man, the man who sows the good seed. We see the barn and the fire. All these are explained starting in verses 34 and following. 
A.W. Pink, he's a, a scholar, he writes a lot of stuff. He gives us an outline for this that you can use if you want to share an outline. And he, here it is in your papers, and you can look at that later, worthlessness and so forth. And we know there's good seed, and we gave you some Greek words here. We're not going to worry about that. But while the man slept in darkness, the enemy, the devil, intentionally tried to spoil the harvest. Isn't that like him? I was telling the guys, we had a meeting last night here, the deacons and I and Bryce, and uh, we're saying, isn't it wonderful right now we have such unity in this church? I don't know anybody that's mad at anybody. If you're mad at somebody, <laughs> okay, you're going to break the, the good streak right now. But uh, I think you, our attendance is not where it needs to be. Tonight, I think we have a lot of teens, but, but I mean, we're, we need to get the coronavirus behind us. Thank God he's in control. He's sovereign. I don't understand all that, but we know that I, that if we keep unity and we, we just keep serving the Lord and sowing seed, we're going to be opposed. There's going to be opposition. Never do you find a church that's doing something for God where the devil doesn't raise up and try and ruin everything. So he's that way. He acts like a farmer, doesn't he, in the text? He's a hypocrite. Now, sometimes Christians are hypocrites. I mean, we're saved, but sometimes we act like something we're not. I, 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 like to, to, I like people who are transparent. Isn't there a freshness about a new Christian that stands up and says, pray for me. I'm really struggling with greed. And you're like, he's admitting that in front of the whole I love that. Because he's transparent. You know, I like Paul saying, there's nothing good in me. I have a rotten old nature. And I like that God sometimes allows us to see Bible characters and their failures. It teaches us the Word of God is real. I mean, it shows us the, the bad side of Christianity. And we will at times be disappointed in people. I pray that I don't ever disappoint you, but I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And don't ever look at me and elevate me in any way in your mind. I've said to young preacher boys in Okinawa, they all the young GIs that sit in the front rows, and I said, don't put me on a pedestal. Because when I fall, I'll break in a lot more pieces the higher you lift me up. Pride goeth before a fall. And I don't want to be lifted up and elevated because I know what I am. And you've heard preachers say this, and I'll say this tonight. If you knew my heart the way God knew it, you wouldn't have shown up tonight. You say, what are you doing, Brother Dan? I'm not doing anything. That's not my point. I just know how Scripture describes all of our hearts as desperately wicked. And if we're not careful, we have a reprobate mind too. You know, we, we have to realize what we are. We are nothing but by the grace of God. Anything good you ever hear in this pulpit, give God glory, it's by his grace. Probably the best things that I ever say slip out accidentally, right? You know, that's how God is. He's just sovereign. And he's going to, I've said so many times, God, thank you for using me in spite of myself. You know, my, my sons know me when I'm here tonight. And I don't know how many times I've had to say, I'm sorry for getting angry. <laughs> you know, you yell at your kids. And I'm sorry, son. And we have to realize that we are just clay. We're just dirt. Now, there's deity in this dirt, but I've been made, I'm from the clay. There's nothing good about clay, but there's deity. God breathed in us life. And then when we're born again, we have God living in us. 
That's awesome stuff to think about the fact that he's in us. But anyway, Satan, he acts as a farmer. He imitates so much. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11. Um, he's such an actor. He tries to do everything God does. He's an actor, an imitator. He has a false trinity. Someone once said, I don't remember, I think it's, I'm trying to think of who said that, maybe Pentecost, I don't remember, but he has a false trinity, doesn't he? You know, these false prophet antichrist. Everything God does, he tries to emulate. Uh, you know, and so he he's, he's copies and tries to steal God's thunder. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 and 14 says, For such are false prophets, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. There it is. I mean, he, he really appears good. And he's so clever in how he works his way into the church. Now, as a young pastor, when I was in my 20s and I went to the canal zone of Panama, started a church, I wasn't very clever and very prudent and very discerning. And sometimes I get caught up in something. Someone come up and say, let me tell you about so-and-so. And they tell me some smut on somebody. And as a young pastor, I'm like taken back by it. And it bothers me about that person. And I'm kind of questioning that person I heard this about. And I'm kind of distancing myself. And that's not fair to them. Come to find out it wasn't true. It was just slander. And what I should have done as a young pastor is said to that person, you know, I don't want to hear bad talk about that person. If you see sin in their life and they've harmed you, you need to go to them one on one. And if they don't make it right, then you need to get people who've seen what they've done, the witnesses, and confront them again. And then, then we can bring it before the church. But so many times the devil creeps in like that. Like Jude, I, I, I call him a creep. He creeps in. And he'll just sow a little seed, a little something that's not true. And it runs through the church. I mean, there's been so many people hurt over the years in churches because people have started something they weren't sure of and it's spread. And folks, it hurts people. And then he's happy. Don't give him an inch. Don't give him an inch. Shut the ear gate. Tell people, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear about Brother Dan and some mistake he made. I don't want to hear about Larry. Because the Bible tells us to think the best of people. And that's what love does. You know, love doesn't think the evil of everyone. It thinks good, doesn't it? So realize that he's going to get in here somehow, some way. What we have to do is make him flee. Resist the devil and he will flee. Jesus quoted scripture. I mean, he's the son of God who never could sin because he's impeccable. And what did he do when he felt temptation? He quoted scripture and sent him packing. Satan tried three times and the Lord said, no, no, no. Gave him scripture and that was it. He won the victory. So that's not part of the subject here. But one of his devices is, is to act like something he's not. Act like he's an angel. Um, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, just a few pages before this. <clears throat> Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, and notice how he takes advantage, or he gets advantage, it says here, for we are not ignorant of his devices. A lot of Christians are, are ignorant of his devices. 
One of his favorite things to do, the word Satan means adversary. The word devil is the word diabolos, but Satan means adversary. And what he does is pit people against each other. He's an enemy. He hates us, so he's going to try and have other people hate us. Brother Jim, you remember I used to rent property. I, I, Brother Jim thought I was the nicest landlord. Jim didn't know what I wanted to do. He just knew what I did. I would let people cuss me out, accuse me of being everything but a vampire, because they were three and four months behind in rent. And I decided, I want to get out of the rental business. And I've only got one left, but I got good renters in there. But I mean, when they fall behind in the rent, you are all of a sudden an ax murderer. You're a pedophile. And they'll cuss you out and create a big scene. And you're like, I I'm, I'm trying to be really nice to you if you want to pay. And Jim stood there, two or three different tenants. And I, I thought, I, I, being a pastor, <laughs> I can't do this. But Satan could take something like that. I was always glad to have Jim there. He'd come over sometimes. I'd just call him and say, can you come over? Because I never wanted for anybody to believe any of this junk. You know, I, I've made it a, a practice to never go in the house of a woman alone. I learned that from, I think, maybe Billy Graham or something. Heard that years ago. Heard somebody say that. Because what does the devil do? He's a false accuser. He's your adversary. Avoid the appearance of evil. One time years ago, I broke down in my car. And the only place I could see in walking distance is a bar. And I had to make a phone call. This is before cell phones. I was a 20-something-year-old guy. And I sat there in my car 30, 40 minutes. I walked way past the bar, two directions. I thought, God, what do I do? I got to call someone. I don't want to go in a bar. Now, I wasn't even in town. So I could have probably gone in and made a phone call. Finally, someone said, you need some help. I said, I need to make a phone call. Well, the phone right back. I said, well, I didn't really want to go in there. I'm a minister. So they took me and made the phone call. But... I was probably a little overkill there, but it's so important for us to think about what do people see in our lives and are we careful to live above reproach? You'll be accused falsely enough in your life that you don't need to be accused with some legitimate truth. So walk circumspectly, walk carefully, right? So he is, be aware of his devices and notice that Darnell looks just like weed in the early stages. It has to grow a little bit. It comes up and the, farm, the clever farmer can see the difference. But notice he says, you know, wait, here's Satan, the trespasser, the squatter. You know, one day he's going to be bound. I love that. He'll be bound for a thousand years for the millennial reign. And then at the end of that thousand years, he's going to be loose for a little season. And what will he do? Will he repent? Of course not. He'll go out and deceive nations and turn nations against God. And all the nations of the world will gather once again to defeat Israel and defeat Jesus. And once again, they'll lose. They lost at Armageddon. They don't learn their lesson. They'll attack again. That's, that's who he is. He's, he's, he's behind everything in America right now. Every rape, every murder, every abortion, every, you know, robbery, everything. He's behind it all. And, you know, I hear people talk about, now there's a thing. And, of course, we know that when they're going to believe the lie. The Bible says when we're gone, they're going to believe the lie. What's the lie? That means the liar, technically. And Satan's going to have sown enough information in our world for people to believe that some aliens came and got us. What do we hear now all the time? We hear now, let's go find 
See if there, yesterday or someone on those, see if there's life on Venus. And then someone said, but maybe they'll bring back the virus, another kind of virus here. I'm thinking these people are total nuts. You know, they have all this head knowledge, but they don't have the wisdom of God. The Bible said the earth hath he made for the children of men. This is the place God placed man. And we spend billions out there to do all this stuff. But our world, the worldview is so messed up that there's going to be a deception. When we're gone, they're going to say aliens took all those people. They're all gone. It was aliens. Or something. Maybe spacecrafts, they'll think. People see all these things, UFOs. You know what that is? Probably the devil or demons manifesting some sort of uh, confusion. So we know there's going to be a lie. and people, he, he, He's a master liar manipulator. And so here the servants say, well, you know, you sow good seed, right, Master, or Lord? Or, and he, and he's, he's, he says, should we, they say, should we separate them? He said, no, let them grow together till the harvest. Now that threw me for a curve, and so I hit my commentaries. I guess probably read 10 commentaries on every passage I study, and I, and I read, and, and, and the best logical explanation is that God waits until the end to separate the wheat from the tares to give the tares every opportunity to be saved. So he doesn't let us know sometimes who they are in the church. In fact, most of the time we don't know. So now don't presume that someone causes troubles lost, but they may be. We can't judge people. We don't know their hearts. And so God says, you know, here Jesus, the one who sowed the good seed, Jesus, he says, you know, wait, wait, and uh, it will let them grow together uh, until the right season. And uh, he says, gather them up, and then we'll separate them. The word gather is an interesting word. We get our Greek word, we get our word synagogue from that. The synagogue was a gathering. You remember in the book of Acts, in, in the Gospels, the Jews were still going to the synagogue. They got saved, they were still going to the synagogue. Paul preached in the synagogues. Finally, they were run out of the synagogue for good, and the church started. Uh, if you go in a synagogue today, the one passage you won't find is Isaiah 53. All through the Old Testament, Israel is referred to in the feminine, except Isaiah 53, he was wounded, and the rabbis say, in my Tanakh, they say, well, well uh, uh, yeah, that, that is also Israel. Wait a minute, why is he Israel when Israel's a feminine all through the Old Testament? Uh, you know, it's like saying the bride of Christ is always the church except in one passage. It doesn't make sense hermeneutically. We know Isaiah 53 is talking about a man, the man, the Lord Jesus. He was wounded for our transgressions, not Israel. But anyway, we know that he is a deceiver. And one day God's going to take the blinders off and the Jews are going to be saved and they're going to accept him as Messiah. What a day that's going to be. But here he says, wait, now Darnell ends up being black in color where the wheat would be a, a lightish color, we could say a white-like color. And so you could tell by color. You could tell, too, because they say that wheat, and wheat farmers will tell you this, wheat gets heavy and it bends over. Walter Wilson says that's a type, that's a type of, of uh, humility uh, of the child of God. We should be, we should be uh, humble, and that wheat is a type of that, where the darnell is a type, it's black, it's a type of sin. I, 
I love typology, of course. You know, you think of Noah and the ark. The ark rests on the 17th day, and you ought to study that because they change months, and that talks about this, that fall would fall on a Sunday when they change the calendar, and that's all fabulous stuff. Christ's resurrection all lines up with that. Uh, several great works on that. Even M.R. DeHaan has a great word on that. But um, it, it's fascinating to me, and I'll, I'm losing my train of thought. I'm losing my mind, as I always do. Um, where did I start that sentence? Anyway, the wheat, and he separated at harvest, and somehow, oh, I was talking about the ark. And I thought it's cool. He sends the, uh, the raven out. Thank you, Lord, for bringing my mind back to me. He sends the raven out, and the raven can live off the dead filth of the world. And when he sends a dove out, it comes back with an olive branch. And the dove, of course, they say speaks of the Holy Spirit. The raven speaks of sin. And there's just so much typology that we don't need to go into, but... I have written down here the raven and the, and the dove, the white and the black. And, um, but most scholars say that, I, I wrote several down somewhere in my office, that that's, God waited on separation because he wanted to give the, wheat, the tares a chance. Well, anyway, Psalm 78 verse 2 said he would speak in parables. And this passage and other passages fulfill that. And then we're told that he that soweth is the son of man. We're given all those answers in verses 34 and following. The good seed of the children of the kingdom. I like how God plants us in the world, and we're supposed to be planting seeds as well. Isn't it something? We're, 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 we're the living, we're the, the, God lives in us, and so we're the word of God, according to uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 and 3. Ye are our epistle, known and read of all men. You're not written with ink on tables of stone, but with the Spirit of God in the heart. We are a Bible. And God plants us in the world. He's sown his seed in our heart. We're saved. He lives in us. Now he takes us like seed and puts us in the world and says, now you got to start working the fields. The field is a world. And we're supposed to be farmers. We're supposed to be planting. And we're supposed to pick the harvest. Probably the easiest thing is picking the harvest. Uh, Brother Henry is talking about people who come to know the Lord. And I've always been amazed at how, what an ignorant, uh, you know, dope I am. I mean, I guess, I guess it's a double. I mean, I've gone out and I've done the great presentation of the gospel. I was so eloquent and the person just showed no interest. And the next time I go out and I witness, I can't remember things. I'm stuttering. I'm nervous. And someone gets saved. And I'm like, oh, my word. God just always shows me that he's real and I'm a joke. <laughs> Thanks, Lord, for letting me pick that, pick that fruit. But I know it wasn't my presentation, you know, because we try to impress people. Listen, just be real. Just share your testimony. A lot of people say, well, I can't witness because... Um, you know, I don't know enough about the Bible. You know Jesus. You know how long it took Andrew to get Peter? He got saved. He went and got his brother and said, come meet the Messiah. And see, what we do is hesitate. Well, I want to learn this. And we use that as an excuse. And then we don't witness. Sometimes we say, well, I'm too nervous to witness. Let me tell you something. The person you're witnessing to is nervous as well. Because the Holy Spirit's working on them. So don't allow Satan to deceive you into not witnessing by saying you're just not qualified. Moses, you can't lead. You know, you're not a good speaker. I'll give you Aaron. What's your excuse now? You know, I know I'm paraphrasing, but it's true. We, we, we don't do the work of God because we don't realize we're supernaturally empowered. We're given power and authority in the word of God to witness. 
and we're given a command. And that command is repeated. And when he gives us the command, when he gave him the upper command in the upper room, he meant to continue, continue, continue to go and preach the gospel into all the world. You can't just say, well, I witnessed one time, I'm done for life. No, we're supposed to be witnessing all the time and reaching people. And of course, we know the children of the kingdom and the enemy is the devil. And, and, and we know that uh, it talks about the Lord will harvest at the end of the world. That's the end of the age, not cosmos. But here we find the application to your life. All right, look at that section there. The Lord knows those who are his, 2 Timothy 2, 19. He knows. He knows every heart here tonight. He knows if you're born again. He knows if you're not. He knows even if you think you're born again and are not born again, he even knows that. You know, when I first got saved, I was 12 years old. That's 62 years ago. I'm almost 64. And I was, had gone to First Baptist Church of Okemos, heard the gospel, went home. I received Christ 30 or 40 times that summer. Now, I only needed to ask him once, but I didn't know. I would ask him to save me, and the next day I'd do something stupid or wrong, and then I'd think, I'm not a Christian. I wouldn't have lied to my school teacher. I wouldn't have, you know, cheated on my homework or whatever. I'm just giving you illustrations. And, and, I, and I would doubt, and I'd get on my knees, Lord, save me. And finally, as I grew and mature, I realized I'm always going to have this sinful nature. I need to learn 1 John 1, 9, that if I confess my sins, he's just, faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me. That Catherine gets all the sin. The moment you confess, it's gone. And once I learned that, I didn't have to keep thinking I've got to get saved again. And the first time I put my faith in the Lord, it was real. But that Holy Spirit made me feel pretty rotten when I sinned. More rotten than before I was saved. <laughs> And then somehow, after you become a Christian, man, you do something and you just feel terrible. Before I was saved, I'd brag about punching someone. After I'm saved, I remember I got in a fight in, in high school. A new kid came in there. I just didn't like him, and I got in a fight with him on the way home. I went home, and my dad was so disappointed in me. And uh, it was the only black kid that came to our school. I decided the kids didn't like him, so I was going to beat him up. And he was tough. But I went home and I felt so bad. My dad scolded me. I cried. I went to school the next day and found that guy. And I said, I want to ask you to forgive me. And he looked at me. I said, I did the wrong thing. And I told him, I said, I, I, I just became a Christian a while back. And I said, fighting is wrong. And I was wrong in coming after you. And so he and I were friends throughout high school. And he, his, his name's Steve Roberts. And he respected that I apologized. And I felt so bad. And then my dad was so disappointed because my dad always taught us to love people. My dad had his two favorite workers where he worked was a guy named Chico, a Mexican fella, and a black fella. My dad loved those guys. And he would tell us, you know, I don't want to ever hear that word with the end in this house. You know, we knew where dad stood. I broke everything I knew. I broke my dad's confidence in me. I broke the Lord's heart. I hurt another young man. But boy, the Lord wouldn't let me go, you know. And uh, I'm so glad to this day I apologized 
to that young man, and I'm so glad, more glad he accepted it. You know, when you're without the Lord, you're proud of things you do wrong. Boy, when the Lord lives in you, you're miserable, you know. And so be careful. Anyway, the Lord knows those. At the end of the age, he's going to deal with the enemy. And uh, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 to 10, we can turn there just for a moment. 2 Thess 1. I think we've got a few more minutes. We do. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 to 10. Look what it says here. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, take vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in them that believe, because our testimony among you is you was believed among you was believed in that day. So we know he's going to take vengeance on sinners. And this should not cause us to rejoice. It should cause us to rest in him, to know that what's going on in our world is going to be dealt with. But we should still have compassion for the lost. Too often times we get up in our pulpits and we bash all the people out there and we don't talk about compassion for those people who need Jesus. Never, ever gloat in the fact that someone's going to hell. Because that's forever and ever and ever. I mean, the greatest agnostic and the scoffers and the skeptics and the people who make fun of us, sometimes we think, well, they'll get their day. Wait a minute. The Bible teaches us that we should be broken for them. That word compassion, the word nausea. Is, is We should have that. It should bother us so much we're sick inside about someone being lost. But he'll also deal with the enemy. You know, Daniel 12, 3 tells us we're going to shine forever and ever and ever. But there are a lot of people that are going to be dealt with, and the vengeance is going to be uh, there in the last day. But in 1 Thessalonians, well, I think you want answers to this. I guess we can go through your, Do you ever question the salvation of some people in church? Obviously, you're going to put yes. Are you aware there will always be tares amongst the wheat? And you'll put yes. Write the last line of Matthew 15, 13. So let's go in order and, and look at Matthew 15, 13. And you can do this later if you can't write fast enough. But this is our practical application, uh, our teaching hour of the week. But he answered and said, Every plant which, is my heavenly, which my heavenly Father hath planted shall be rooted up. So uh, in, in Matthew 15, 13, he's going to root up everything that's not authentic. He's going to root up every plant and, uh, that he hasn't planted. If God didn't plant it, the tares will be taken up. Every plant. Then look here, uh, the next line. How should this comfort you when you see an imperfect church person? Well, we know some are lost, but God's in control. It's not our job to judge. Then, so that our salvation is not questioned, the last page, what should we do according to 2 Timothy 2.19? Are you in Thessalonians, about five or six pages to your right is 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.19, and the last part of verse 19 of 2 Timothy 2.19. 
bear with me, I was in first. It says, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. If you're a believer, depart from it. There's two sides to that coin. We talked Sunday about adding to your faith, seven things. Good allegory, by the way. And, and we talked about what we need to do in the positive, right? We need to add to our faith, seven things. And we explained those. You can see it in the video if you didn't get to see it. But also, on the other side, we need to stop doing some things and get rid of some things in our life. The Bible says in Hebrews 12, when you're running the race, that word race is word agon or word agony. It's agonizing. He says, lay aside every weight and sin. Sometimes you may not think of something as sin, but it becomes a weight and becomes eventually sinful. You know, I knew a guy that was a bodybuilder and he would spend 20 hours a week at the gym at night, working out every night, lifting weights. And he wondered what was wrong with his marriage. I said, well, you're not home with your wife for starters. It's okay to work out. It's okay to watch TV. It's okay to play a video game, but hello, there ought to be a time limit in your conscience somewhere. Hey, I've done this, done this enough. You know, we have a lot of weights that we're carrying when we're trying to run the race for God. The race is already agonizing. Why do we want to weight ourselves down with things that eventually will become sin? Because it is sinful when you spend too much time doing something. So be careful. Enjoy the things God's given you, but don't allow them to take control. Then I have here, why do you suppose Jesus says to let him separate the wheat and the tares at the judgment time? I have two answers here that scholars have given me. One, it's easy for him to identify them. Of course, God knows all things, but it's easy for the farmer at harvest time to separate as well. And then also, some could be saved, and God gives them every opportunity. And then we look at 2 Thessalonians 2. We were in 1 Thessalonians. Now we're going to look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Or we were in 2, but we're in 2 again, but the next chapter. And now we'll look at how God is going to deal with the enemy. We talked about how he's going to deal with sinners, but how is he going to deal with Satan and his armies? Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse uh, 7. Same, same for me. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. The word letteth can mean with, with, withholds or holds back. There's something holding back Satan from just totally dominating us. I believe it's the Holy Spirit. But scholars differ. 90% of the scholars I've read on that say it's the Holy Spirit. A few say it's other things. But... It's certainly, some believe it's scripture and different things, all good things, good ideas. I mean, it's not worth breaking fellowship. But at some point in time, God is going to not hold Satan back. The mystery of iniquity is already at work. The spirit of Antichrist exists. Turn the television on and listen to the news broadcast. I, I've seen more junk on TV attacking Christians and churches than attacking anyone else. Well, you turn on half a dozen channels you can watch the news on. In 90%, maybe 98% of the channels, they're going to attack Christians, pastors, and churches and expose our mistakes, and we make them. But you won't hear them say a lot about Louis Farrakhan. You won't hear a lot about that, will you? 
And I could name several leaders in our country that are evil people. You won't hear him talk about them. But you take a man who's trying to live righteously and he makes a mistake, it's all over the news. It's important for us folks to gird up our loins, to put on the breastplate, grab the sword, because we're in a battle. And we don't want to be a casualty. I don't want to be on the news. Pastor in Rossville shoots someone in the grocery line who cut in front of him, you know. And I would hope I wouldn't even think about something like that. I, I've told people I would never abandon my kids, but I thought about killing them a few times, you know. <laughs> but, you know, I don't want to be a casualty. I want to finish well. I'm, I, you know, I'm 64 in a couple weeks. I don't, I don't want to end in disgrace. I had a good mission, not a good friend, a missionary I knew. You know, he ran out and cheated on his wife and ran off the woman and shacked up with her, and that's the last five years of his life. All he did in missions, nobody's going to remember that. People who went to the Lord will always be embarrassed to say, well, so-and-so told me about Jesus. You know, when someone in our seminary, Bible college, made mistakes, we were embarrassed. When someone in this church does something, you embarrass and hurt the church. Live right. Live right. So the mystery of iniquity is already at work. He's being held back. But verse 8, Then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they may be saved. The deceiver deceived them. And we're going to have a man of sin will be revealed. Satan's behind the entire package, right? The beast, false prop, the antichrist, it's all Satan. He'll just have his own trinity type thing. But they'll all be exposed and dealt with. And they'll be consumed. And the people they deceive, sadly, will be consumed as well. And that ought to break our hearts. Back as we close, Matthew 25, 33. And this is our last verse. Because we're out of time and... And uh, I don't want to just ramble. Matthew chapter 25, 33 and 34. And look what it says. What does God promise? Now, I, had, I didn't answer the question. Describe the return of the Lord, not the rapture. Remember, the rapture is going to happen, then the tribulation, then the Lord comes back to the earth. Okay, so I didn't explain that. Now you know. But what does God promise us in Matthew 25, 33 and 34? Look at this. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Isn't that awesome? God gives the goats every chance. You know, he gives the tares every chance. In this church, people who sit in this church will not be able to stand before the Lord and say, I never heard the gospel. Right? It's scary to think about what God says. Woe unto Chorazin and Bethsaida. You had all these miracles. I'm paraphrasing now. You saw all these things in my works and you didn't get saved. It would have been better for you to be from Sodom than to be from the Bible Belt of the Holy Land and not receive me. That's scary stuff. If you're not saved, I would just trust Jesus right now. And I'll let you take the last one home, explain the passage and how it may relate to our parable, Revelation 20. 
And we know that he deals with the enemy and so forth in that passage. Let's pray. God bless us. Thank you for Brother Henry. And Lord, we just thank you for his life, his commitment to you. And we just ask you to bless he and his dear wife, uh, their ministry. And Lord, help us to be as encouraging and helpful as we can with them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. <laughs>